As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Joining me is a voice you're all familiar with, one of my favorite people in the world, a friend, a teacher, mentor, and, and a regular co-host on The Malcolm Effect, Deej. Hope you're well, hope you're well. Thank you. Thank you for having me again, as always. As always, as always. And we have an amazing guest today, Harsha Walia. I've Someone I've been like, used her work a lot of times, and I've really come to kind of be inspired by it actually and help me think through things and, and think through things in a very practical way. And oftentimes when I try to engage thinkers, especially your work, Harsha, I ask, what does your work allow me to think through and what question does it answer? And mm. I find this kind of episode particularly to be of importance and pertinent given, you know, what's happening in the UK right now and all over the world concerning the question of borders. So I'm going to throw a quite a broad question out there and I know there's many ways to tackle it and please feel free to tackle it any way you like but what is a border? <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for having me let me say that I'm, I'm such a fan of, of this of this podcast and of your work and your and your presence on social media so thank you what is a border yeah that's a, it's a great question you know I think I can tell you what a border is not maybe I'll start with that which is yes. that you know a border <laughs> is not simply a line on a map and I think that's important to say because that's most commonly how we understand a border, which is that line on a map that differentiates country A from country B, if you will. But really what a border is, is an ordering system of governance to uphold racial capitalism and colonialism and other forms of systemic oppression. And we see that most starkly in the current context of the world, in the ways in which literally who lives where and under what conditions is defined not exclusively through, but primarily through borders. And we're in the midst of global vaccine apartheid, for example, that determines who has access to life-saving vaccines on this planet. And literally where you are born can often determine, you know, I don't say this in an essentialist way or kind of predetermined way, but really can often determine your life expectancy, what your access to resources will be, what your access to, to livelihood will be. And so a border maintains these longstanding extractions of colonialism and capitalism in our contemporary era. I'll start thank with that. you. No, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. But you hit on what was going to be my next question. Thinking about racial capitalism as an analytic there, maybe mm. the specifics. How does a border help produce and reproduce race and capitalism then? Yeah, I mean, you know, if we kind of go from this idea that the border isn't just this line on the map, one of the ways, there are many, but one of the ways in which uh, the border reproduces racial capitalism is that I would argue the border acts as a spatial fix for capitalism. And it does so literally by differentiating pools of labor from each other. So for example, even though migrant workers have crossed the border, so they may be living in a, in a nation state amongst other so-called citizen workers, the border follows them because their temporary migrant status, whether that's as a kind of state-sanctioned 
migrant worker on some kind of temporary visa, or whether that's as an undocumented worker who does not have status and is on, you know, has much more precarious immigration status. The way that the border follows migrant workers is that it literally creates a category of cheapened labor where, you know, if you are an undocumented or temporary migrant worker, you will often not have the right to unionization. You are at the whim of your employer. In the United States, for example, there was a study done that found that 52% of work sites that were undergoing unionization drives had the threats of ICE. So employers use the threats of ICE during unionization drives because what the border does is to create a pool of cheapened labor. And I want to emphasize here cheapened because there is no such thing as cheap labor, right? All, all work should be dignified. All work is dignified, but not all work is valued as such. And so migrant work, uh, which is literally created by the border, is a pool of cheapened labor that employers can exploit. And so what we have now in the world is this template of, you know, what the elite calls circular migration, where people are not always deported. And that's important to understand, because the function of the border is not always to deport, even though that's often the most kind of obvious spectacle of mass raids and detentions and expulsions and those violences. But another function of the border, critically, is deportability, which is that it the border does not function to exclude all people. And, you know, this is really stark and obvious in the case of, say, the United States, right, where the United States is one of is a country in the world that has one of the most intensive surveillance powers. It is a carceral state with the ability to incarcerate and deport and detain all migrants if it actually wanted to, right? It can, it's literally tracking everyone. But the reason that not all migrants and migrant workers are deported is because that cheapened labor is necessary for the maintenance of racial capitalism, for labor exploitation, in order to sustain capitalism through increasing pools of cheapened labor. So the border functions not only to exclude, but primarily to produce precarity and to to produce deportability such that people come and work alongside us, live alongside us, but under extremely precarious conditions in order to benefit bosses. Thank you so much for that, Deej. Thank you so much for that introduction. And thank you so much for expanding on our idea of borders and our, on our knowledge of borders. Mm. Um, I wanted to sort of like give you the opportunity to expand further because in the context of the UK and because in many people's mm-hmm. miseducation about you know, how borders are sustained, they tend to very much focus on borders as this sort of cartographical regime, right? What's about mm. the separation of these nation states. But in the context of Britain, for example, we've seen the border regime become interpreted and infected within every single institution using various programs mm. and policies. So whereas people le- tend to think about the border as you're coming on for plane and, you know, you're, you've got immigration Mm -hmm. service or you're coming on a boat and you're met by immigration services. We have systems like, for example, in order to have a place to rent, if you want to rent a home, you have to send your passport and your status. If you want to Mm -hmm. enter education, you have to send your passport and and particular services. So a real estate agent then becomes a a border police, right? Mm -hmm. A teacher becomes Mm -hmm. border police. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you could expand more on how these systems, how these institutions who act as agents of of the border regime benefit the racial capitalist system of divide? 
Yeah, I appreciate that question precisely because you've named the ways in which, again, the border operates in so many different ways, right? And really, it, it mutates the working class into becoming border agents. So people and workers and communities who ostensibly should be in solidarity with each other, teachers and healthcare workers, you know, transit workers, etc., become border guards and start doing the enforcement work of the state. And so you know, we have situations where schools become sites of detention and deportation, where either undocumented students or students with precarious immigration status cannot access schools or universities, or if they do, they can be turned over for deportation. Same at hospitals and health clinics, you know, where people are turned over for deportation, and so on and so forth. And this is especially the case in countries that are ostensibly known for social democracy. So I live in Canada, a country that around the world is lauded for universal public health care. Yet one of the primary functions of the healthcare system in Canada, I shouldn't say primary functions, but one of the primary violences that occurs at the site of the healthcare system is what's called medical deportation, which is that, you know, if someone is accessing the healthcare system that is uninsured, they very quickly get deported in what's called a medical deportation. Or if a migrant worker becomes so injured that they're no longer able to do their job for their employer, the employer and the healthcare system and border guards carry out what's called a medical deportation. And so in uh, other countries as well, you know, like the Nordic countries or the UK, we see public services kind of lose lose the social solidarity spirit through which they were ostensibly created, which is that the fight for public services, particularly as a fight against capitalism and austerity, is a fight to maintain the commons, if you will, a, a principle of public services for all people, regardless of income or, you know, based on need, etc., trying to take public services out of the profit motive, but they adopt this kind of nationalist border logic then about um, who is able to access these services and who is not able to access these services. So this kind of quotidian workplace ritual of turning workers into border guards, which kind of feeds into the border logic of exclusion, and also then becomes a weapon for racial capitalism, as you point out, especially when people start to turn against migrants, right? So when our public services are falling apart under austerity, because we have governments and carceral systems that decide to pour money into the police and the military and prisons and border enforcement instead of care sectors like hospitals and childcare and education, etc., then it becomes far too easy to start to scapegoat migrants, right? And start to say that migrants are the ones who are responsible for austerity logics. They become the scapegoat and xenophobia gets reproduced in this vicious cycle. And of course, racial capitalism gets reproduced because then, you know, it becomes much more easier when that solidarity is broken for capitalist interests to start to privatize even more our public services um, or the public services, <laughs> And so that the way in which the border follows people and the ways in which the border becomes internalized, even in our communities and our movements, is incredibly insidious and, and very, very dangerous, especially in this time of you know, escalating uh, fascism, where xenophobia is one of many scapegoats. 
Thank you so much for that elaboration. And I think your point is so poignant because as we know, in the context of places like Britain and Europe more expansively, where we have this sort of pride of having a social welfare system that is robust, that is there to meet the needs of especially sort of impoverished and deprived populations, we're literally seeing 10 years of like Tory austerity now be blamed Mm -hmm towards refugees specifically, not just even migrants, refugees. And we see people like Swella Braverman who came on the news quite recently Mm -hmm. and quite publicly said that the reason why the NHS is failing, the reason why your kids aren't getting places in schools is because of our immigration crisis. And it's because of this invasion, right? Being quite Mm -hmm. provocative with that language intentionally to stoke up fascism. So thank you so much for that, for that articulation. I think it's necessary for people to understand that the border moves beyond the sort of like lines of a nation. The border is an infrastructure in and of itself. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the, the slogans that I find most poignant in movements and on in protests and mobilizations is placards that say we have to remember our enemy arrives in a limousine and not on a boat. Absolutely. And I guess one of my questions comes to what you said about no labor is obviously cheap, but it has to, but capitalism requires a cheapening of labor in order to discipline other workers. But when thinking about border mm-hmm. regimes, let's say what we have in Australia, what we have proposals under Priti Patel in the UK, we have this, this difference between, okay, we know that capitalism requires a reserve army of labor to discipline workers, but at the same time, we speak about a points-based system. And a points-based system to me suggests that we're going to get the quote-unquote best of workers abroad to help grow the economy. But then doesn't that mean you're going to end up paying these workers more? Well, no. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Because, (laughs) no, because, you know, that's primarily historically how the kind of convergence of model minority politics with racial politics with immigration systems have worked, right? So, you know, the point system in the UK and Canada has been has been long standing. And really what it does is it still continues. So what it does is it operates um, under this guise of, you know, we're going to get the best of the best of immigrants, which is functionally kind of this the brain drain, right, we're going to get the most educated folks who are upwardly mobile middle class in their countries of origin, but they're not going to be coming to work in the UK or the US or Canada in their professions, right? So which is how we have this long standing kind of trope, if you will, for example, of doctors driving taxi cabs in the United States, um, or in Canada. So because there is still a, a deliberate de-skilling of those immigrants who are coming because they st- they're they still not given the same kind of jobs because they supposedly or allegedly don't have Western experiences, right? So the, the very common story of doctors who are educated across Asia, across Africa, across Latin America, across the Caribbean, who come into the imperial powers of you know North America or Western Europe, but are not able to work in their professions because of de-skilling and the lack of recognition of their credentials. So what that what the point system I would argue actually does is it's it still maintains the kind of cheapening of labor though in a different way because you know those are folks who are not necessarily working in some of the most cheapened sectors of labor, right? So they may not be working in construction or retail, for example, but there's still a cheapening and a de-skilling, a deliberate de-skilling of labor that is happening. But primarily what the point system, I would argue, works to function as is to maintain forms of social hierarchy and oppression 
based on proximity to whiteness, for example, dominant castes, you know, folks who are model minorities who don't have criminal records. And so what the what the point system does is it actively functions to exclude those who are considered, quote unquote, undesirable, because there are black and indigenous, low income, single parents, single mothers, who are queer and trans, who are sex workers, etc. So the point system primarily functions to, to maintain forms of social hierarchy based on desirability and undesirability while still ma- maintaining the cheapening of the, of the labor sector as a whole. So my next question was a sort of follow-up from this. We've discussed the sort of logics of the border regime as it pertains to the imperial core and nations in the imperial core. But I wonder if you could expand on the border regime as beyond even those conceptions even mm. as a sort of system of global divide, which, mm-hmm. of course, we can understand through the logics of the devaluation of migrant labor in the context of the empires in which migrants go to. But what about the larger sort of racial capitalist politics of the devaluation of not only labor, but of skills, but of knowledges, but of mm. possibilities outside of the imperial core? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the kind of what policy wonks call kind of south to south migration is so important because, you know, even outside the imperial core, of course, there's so many stratifications of the ways in which labor circulates. You know, right now, there was a spotlight on the UAE most recently around the World Cup in terms of the ways in which predominantly African and Asian labor is treated in the Gulf, in the Gulf countries and the GCC countries under the kafala system, for example. We know that the Philippines is a major exporter of labor, which is connected to imperial histories because of, of course, U.S. imperialism in the Philippines and the ways in which the IMF and the World Bank have just decimated the Filipino economy and devalued Filipino currency. But, you know, we have this we have this reality where the Philippines, as well as other countries, but in particular, the Philippines almost entirely relies on migrant remittances to sustain the economy of the Philippines, right? So Filipino migrants who are moving away to other countries, often within the global south, and their remittances, and because of currency devaluation, their remittances that they send back to the Philippines sustains not only their families, but really the economy of the Philippines, which is further being decimated now by by climate change. And so migration and borders really do uphold these longstanding legacies of deliberate underdevelopment and imperialism and its various contours, even outside of the imperial core, through these kind of circular networks of labor migration. And also, we increasingly see countries outside the imperial core, as you say it, being pulled into these global violences of immigration enforcement. So, you know, we know that in the case of the EU, for example, you know, Fortress EU does not exist only at the borders of the EU. It is increasingly outsourced into the Sahel regions of Africa, into Turkey, you know, the UK-Rwanda deal. In the case of the United States, Mexico is increasingly conscripted into the war on migrants. There are now more, according to statistics in the past few years, there are more Central Americans that are being deported from Mexico than are being deported from the United States. Because, you know, the way that migration deals are made is that increasingly third countries that are considered both countries of origin and transit routes are increasingly outsourced to manage migration, to prevent migration, you know, before they even reach the imperial core, right? So Mexico, 
as a transit route for Central Americans coming up to the U.S.-Mexico border is increasingly adopting migration checkpoints within Mexico. And of course, you know, the tragedy most recently of the fire in Juarez, that is a function both of Mexican migration policy and U.S. migration policy. And this is replicated when it comes to EU migration policy, uh, the ways in which Australia has long outsourced its violences to Papua New Guinea, to Nairu, to Indonesia. So the it becomes important, um, exactly as you named it, for us to see the ways in which really so many countries outside the imperial core are conscripted into the violence of borders and are implicated in the violence of borders to, to different degrees, but nonetheless implicated. You know, we see the horrors unfolding in Libya, for example. You know, we could just go on and on about what's happening, but the frontiers of border militarization are increasingly outside of the imperial core, but of course still working at the behest of the imperial core. Yep, Deej? You might be muted, I think, Deej. There we go. Yeah, I just wanted to say I was really excited as you were sort of recalling this because you basically captured all these sort of points and connections that I was thinking of in my head and that has been central to a lot of your work. I guess my next question is a question about the realities of ecological devastation that are currently happening, historically happening, and are going to happen more so, especially in, in the global south. And how do we create the possibilities of resistance from not only the way the border regime is going to treat ecological crisis, but how we resist against the border regime in totality. Yeah. You know, we know that ecological crisis is a symptom of colonialism and capitalism and oppression. And I appreciate the ways in which you you named it as in the arc of history, because contemporary kind of movements understand environmentalism as new, but we know that so many fights against colonialism inherently and necessarily also were fights for ecological justice, especially thinking alongside indigenous fights for land and land stewardship and indigenous jurisdiction. But certainly what we have seen increase, of course, is climate-induced displacements. There are so many different statistics on this, but you know, one of them is that every two to three seconds, someone on the earth is being displaced by a climate event. And also that the kind of the number of people who are newly displaced as a result of different disasters, those who are displaced newly as a result of climate disasters now outpaces other forms of displacement by three to one, right? So by every measure, we know that deforestation and famine and flooding, and so much more is uh, forcing displacement and is exacerbating existing kinds of horrors for people in terms of economic impoverishment and loss of land and livelihood. And the ways in which elite respond to climate migration, I think is very telling, because on the one hand, uh, you know, we have many global elite who deny climate change. I mean, this is less the case now, you don't have outright climate denial but as close to climate denial as we can get in this in this era. You know, so the elite basically deny and or downplay the severity of climate crisis. But one of the areas in which we absolutely see that they are dealing and contending with the reality and scope and scale of climate and ecological disaster is climate displacement. Because while they downplay climate, one of the things that they absolutely are doing is diving into this field of climate security, the centerpiece of which is fortifying the border against climate refugees. 
And so we see, you know, so many countries, particularly in the Imperial Corps, who have adopted entirely new fleets and strategies of marine interdiction and turnbacks of climate refugees. You know, in the case of the Australian Navy, they have like a whole new fleet, as does the United States, to deal with climate-induced disasters. And so that's the reality of what we see. And, you know, one of the ways in which I think it's so important for progressive movements to respond, especially with this kind of parallel rise in eco-fascist discourse, you know, which sees the emergence of environmentalism with fascism, or rather the weaponization of environmental degradation in order to further fascism, is really to embrace an internationalist solidarity that seeks to abolish borders. Like that has to be at the center any progressive internationalist revolutionary movement Because we cannot have, for example, things like Green New Deals that are so bordered in scope that only seek kind of justice in these nationalistic bordered ways, but that will continue to exacerbate extraction in the global south. You know, we know that the epicenter of greenwashing, for example, is on the African continent, whether that's land grabs in the form of land grabs in northern Africa or, for example, you know, blood batteries that are being produced in the Congo. Like all of these greenwashing technologies that uphold these kind of visions of a Green New Deal or just transition that continue to rely on A, extraction from the global south, and B, that deny the immense violence of climate displacement in the global south are completely hollow visions of justice, right? They just reproduce the apartheid system that the global north is built upon. And so it is so imperative that we understand abolishing borders as necessary to climate justice internationally, and that we understand abolish borders and the the abolition of borders as central to any kind of planetary international justice and internationalist movement, because borders really are a pillar of violence in the world today that upholds such immense social stratification and the social organization of difference across race and citizenship and gender and sexuality and more in a way that it is literally a deathscape for people, right? So the deathscape is not just at the borders, which we know and witness every day, but the the deathscape of premature death is every day because of the violence of borders. And so the abolition of borders is so necessary in any radical vision of justice that we're involved in. Thank you so much again. And this is why I was so excited to be in conversation with you um, <laughs> because I've read your work and I know how expansive your thinking on borders is. I know that oftentimes the discourse on the border regime is so limiting, is so incapable of dealing with the realities and the complexities and the multiplicities of the border regime as this global and totalizing infrastructure that has real consequences Mm. for our lives. And I'm so glad you mentioned about the systems of greenwashing in conversation I was having recently with, you know, a friend who was almost utopian about the possibilities of a green Europe seems to Mm. fail to even grapple with what that possibility meant for the continent, whereby Mm. the mining of things like cobalt and lithium is Mm. polluting waters, right? There are entire villages of people who are being displaced by land grabs, who are being displaced, who are already limited in the resources they have, because we understand Mm -hmm. colonialism meant the underdevelopment and the exploitation of, of the continent of Africa so much so that, you know, for many people having 
24 hour, seven day a week access to water is not possible. It's a dream. Mm-hmm. Having access to electricity mm-hmm. is a dream. But these are the same nations who, through this system of exploitation, through the degradation of their ecology, are making the possibilities for us to have even more excess than we already have in the Western possibility. Mm. You all are so brilliant. <laughs> so brilliant, so incisive, and so succinct. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, I guess a question I had on this point then, speaking about Suela Braverman then, and speaking of what we what mm. we see, I know, I know you speak about in your work the links between the USA, India, and other fascistic and, and the right word turn we're seeing globally. So I guess bringing it to like a real life example, in your assessment or reading of what's happening in the UK right now, with it, is it merely just because the Rishi Sunak is seeing that he's like doing terrible in the polls and he notices that he can ramp up fear about migrants and kind of lean into nationalism and nativism to get votes or something more than that happening? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's that and it's something more. And, you know, that's where attention and our careful study and our careful listening of different contexts is so important. And, you know, this is, of course, precisely why so many Black and Indigenous and Muslim and Dalit organizers and communities have always made so clear, for example, that we cannot collapse our analysis into one of, you know, POCs, right? Because it becomes too easy to say, oh, you know, that's just a person of color who is, you know, adopting white supremacist policies. It is that, but it is also paying attention to the ways in which not only does, you know, class migrate, but also caste migrates. And so, of course, we have the reality, particularly in the UK context of a certain demographic of migrants who come from particular backgrounds that are diverse, but often universally upper caste and who are informed by the caste system, who are trained in the caste system, which is a deeply violent system. It is deeply oppressive. And so, you know, this isn't just about kind of racial politics gone bad. This is also actually very consistent with the ways in which class and correspondingly caste operates. And so I think, you know, paying attention and being aware of those multiplicities and refusing to flatten identities and social locations becomes really important when we're understanding politics and when we're trying to understand what's at play, right? Because of course, it is not inconsistent for Brahminical Hindutva fascism to oppress people. That is its very foundation. You know, and the Indian state has long been occupying Kashmir, for example, an incredibly violent genocidal occupation. Hindutva is a deeply violent uh, system across caste, deeply embedded in Islamophobia, along with violence against many religious minorities. And so there is, there is a synergy between Indian Brahminical fascism, Hindutva fascism, and the policies of migrant exclusion that certain politicians adopt and uphold, whether in the UK or in the US or elsewhere. Um, Those are not inconsistent positions based on their race, but they're often consistent positions based on their their, uh, social location across class and caste and their location, for example, within the South Asian subcontinent. Again, your sort of analysis of (laughs) the interrelationship between the border regime in the context of the imperial core and its peripheries and actually nations in which it seeks collaboration with 
is is so poignant. I guess my sort of final question was to circle back on the point you made about how international solidarity and building international solidarity is the real kind of tool we have for challenging the border regime and understanding its multiplicity and complexity. I wondered if you have any sort of examples or any actual kind of like points of praxis in organizations or movements you've seen that are pushing forward this work on challenging through this critical and expansive lens, the border regime, its technologies and its interactions with racial capitalism? Hmm. Yeah, my answer might be weird, (laughs) which is that I actually see fights against the border in so many places. One of the ways I try not to talk about my book too much, but I'll quickly just say one of the things that I start off doing in my book is talking about fights against gentrification, fights that I've been involved in for a long time. And for me, you know, I see fights against displacement, any fight against displacement and dispossession as necessarily a fight against the border. And conversely, sometimes fights that we see as, you know, again, most obviously spectacles against the border are often so limited in their vision, right? Because either they have a really kind of deracialized politics of open the borders um, that talks about migrants and refugees and really kind of ahistoric ways that doesn't account for imperialism or enslavement or colonialism or indentureship or is really fixated with the border or, you know, the border wall, for example, as the site of struggle. And so oftentimes those ostensibly kind of border fights I find more limiting uh, than other fights that maybe are not seen as part of the border fight. And so for me, anti-colonial and anti-capitalist fights that are fighting against displacement in any form, you know, from the sweatshop to the shop floor, to the fight against gentrification, to trans liberation fights, uh, you know, to fights against drone warfare, to fights against land grabbing. These fights are all fights against displacement and hence against the border, because ultimately a no borders world is not just where we topple, you know, again, those lines on a map is not just a world where we have, you know, oh, open up the border and everyone moves. No, because, you know, a world in which everyone moves, but the the unjust stratifications and exploitations and extractions of the world continue to exist today is not actually justice, but fights against dispossession and displacement anywhere and everywhere within and across borders to me are what a a fight against bordering regimes are fundamentally about. Thank you so much. I know Harsha doesn't talk about her book, but I will. So you have to get Undoing Border and Border and Rule, which are amazing works from our guest today. And this is another episode. Please like, comment, subscribe. I will leave our guest social social handles in the description of the episode. Until next time, peace out.